Greetings, folks, and welcome to An Eclectic Humanist. Today, I think I'd like to talk about Roe v. Wade. It was, of course, the Supreme Court's vote to overturn that decision that prompted me to get this podcast going again, so it really only makes sense that I start there. As for how I want to approach it, um, these episodes will sometimes be scripted and sometimes spoken more or less off the cuff. This one's based around a few short pieces that I wrote for another side project, so it's one of the more scripted ones. But it just makes sense to me to use work that I've already done in one context, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. And to get started, though we will be talking, of course, about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I'd like to begin a long time ago and in a city far, far away. It's 1992. I'm back in Toronto for a couple of weeks during the summer break of my master's degree at the University of New Brunswick, and I'm walking streets I used to frequent while attending the University of Toronto for my undergrad. One part of town I've missed the most is Harvard Village, nestled against the west edge of campus, a haven especially on sunny afternoons of cozy patios, intimate cafes, and bookstores. It's the bookstores that are my objectives today, particularly one of two nearly adjacent shops on the south side of Harvard Street, the Abbey, which, in addition to having one of the best selections of used books in town, is also a lovely little bakery and cafe. As I approach from campus, though, what draws my attention are not the two shop fronts on the ground floors of the respective narrow three-story Victorian houses, but rather a flat gravel emptiness between them. When last I'd been there, the previous summer, that lot had been the Toronto Morgenthaler Abortion Clinic, that is, until it was firebombed by anti-choice activists not long prior to this visit. In the 30 years since then, it's often struck me as poetically appropriate that terrorists acting in one of the most vocally espoused causes of the religious right should render an institution devoted to women's health and bodily autonomy into absence, and that this absence should be located of all possible places between two bookstores. Move forward three decades almost exactly, and the U.S. Supreme Court, with its 6-3 conservative Christian majority, has just overturned the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which protected the right to seek abortions of non-viable fetuses without interference from the government. That last detail, by the way, is really important. The Roe v. Wade decision was founded on the right to privacy and protection against unreasonable search and seizure guaranteed under the Fourth Amendment in the Bill of Rights to the U.S. Constitution. And this change in direction will almost certainly be a harbinger of other and even darker things to come. This attack on American women, or more broadly, American bearers of uteruses, is possible only because Trump stacked the court with theocratically inclined reactionaries, thus setting that country's jurisprudence back by decades and endangering perhaps more than in any other way in his four years of misrule the all-important wall that the founders established between church and state, and that many evangelicals since at least the time of Jerry Falwell and the moral majority have been practically slobbering to break down. This decision also runs against the positions of most Americans, for at least the last three decades, according to Pew Research, with the demographic polling most strongly anti-choice being, according to a fact sheet on public opinion on abortion that Pew released on May 17th of this year, white evangelical Christians. 
The same collection of denominations is also currently the group most active in pushing and supporting anti-trans bills in several state legislatures, rejecting same-sex marriage, opposing Planned Parenthood, sabotaging public education, especially in the sciences and most especially regarding the teaching of evolution, denying human-induced climate change, undermining data-driven environmental policy, and opposing medical best practices in public health. That erasure between bookstores is looming very fucking large right now. But before we get tangled in the rhetorical web of distractions about saving lives, let's get that nonsense out of the way. This argument, no matter how it is worded, and no matter the convictions of many of the less educated people supporting it, is a sham and always has been. It is based on faulty or selective reasoning and either a culpable ignorance or a culpable misrepresentation of available data. Rather, it is and always has been about the regulation of sex and the control of women's bodies. But don't listen to me. I'm nobody. Instead, let's look at some numbers. Numbers always matter. For one thing, declared abortion rates in the U.S. peaked between 1980 and 1990, depending on your source, and have been declining steadily ever since had in fact returned, according to a Statista summary, roughly to 1973 levels by 2019. Moreover, in a study of abortion rates during the 2010s, the Guttmacher Institute notes an utter lack of correlation between restrictions on abortion on the one hand and declines in incidence of abortion on the other. This downward trend in abortion, in the absence of correlation with restrictions, indicates two things that abortion not only can be reduced but is being reduced, and that stripping women of authority over their own bodies is not contributing to this reduction. Now, given that these data are publicly available, one has to assume that anti-choice advocates are aware of them as well, or at least are obliged to be aware, and that therefore their stated position of reducing abortion by restricting bodily autonomy is, at best, deeply dishonest. But wait, there's more. One thing I haven't mentioned yet, the most important factor, is the actual people involved. Who gets abortions anyway? These people are not abstractions. They are flesh and blood, demographically varied and very real. But there are also certain details that many have in common, and these details paint a revealing picture. In a recent article, the New York Times collated data from abortion patients nationwide and emerged with what they call the typical patient. And what does she look like? Well, according to the Times, this person, in addition to having children, is poor, unmarried, and in her late 20s, has some college education, and is in very early pregnancy, end quote. That is, she's already struggling, perhaps already even desperate, given the paucity of help available in the U.S. for single mothers and their children relative to other developed nations. And she is not someone despite the common right-wing talking point, who is simply using abortion as a method of birth control. She is, moreover, someone who has undertaken the responsibility of motherhood at least once already, and who, without exaggerating, may very well be desperate. And yet, the theocrats on the religious right want to force her and people like her to go through not just the difficulties and risks of pregnancy and childbirth, but also the prolonged economic and psychological trauma of raising one or more children in a society that, once those children are born, wants little or nothing to do with their education or their well-being, at least as indicated by typical Republican voting records on any and all programs and proposals that might 
somehow benefit the people over whose wombs they have just usurped authority. But let's pause on that poverty thing. We can start by taking one fact as given. People placed in desperate circumstances will often seek desperate solutions. And let's never pretend that the playing field between the rich and the poor is level. If a rich woman wants an abortion, she will always be able to get one. Always. If the state in which she lives has banned them, she'll go to another state, or perhaps even another country. And more power to her, she is maintaining her bodily autonomy against the theocrats, and I support that choice without reservation. So yeah, the banning of abortions may cause the rich some inconvenience, but it will not ruin their lives or lock them into patterns of desperation and despair. With the poor, though, that's exactly what will happen. And in my darker moments, I believe this to be the intent, for reasons on which I'll elaborate later. So what will these women do? Again, take our typical abortion patient from the New York Times. Already stretched to or beyond her means and limits, being told by a reactionary court and a reactionary state legislature that she must perform her supposed breeding function against her will. What options does she have? One is to submit to this involuntary reproductive servitude and let her body be used. The other is to exert authority over herself in the only ways available to her, to either seek an abortion from an illegal provider or induce one herself. And in case you may be thinking that this is wild speculation, it's not. We know what this world looks like because we have records predating 1973. It's the world the anti-choicers are trying to bring us back to, and here's what it looks like. Data are, of course, hard to come by and may vary, as we might expect, given the stigma and shame, let alone the legal consequences associated with terminating a pregnancy at this time. Estimates of illegal or self-induced abortions in the U.S. during the 1950s and 1960s range annually from 200,000 to 1.2 million, with numbers for 1967, for instance, being extrapolated to 829,000. And for maternal deaths in 1930, it's estimated that about 18%, or about 2,700, were caused by botched abortions. I'm going to say that again. 18% of maternal deaths in 1930 were caused by botched abortions. And the vast majority of those deaths would have been saved had abortion been legal at that time. And that proportion, approximately, seems to have continued at least as late as 1965, though the raw numbers of deaths declined, presumably due to improved emergency medical procedures over three and a half decades. Most of these deaths would have been suffered by poor women trapped in anti-choice jurisdictions, and it is these women who now stand most to suffer in this way again. But getting back to the number of abortions, that 829,000 for 1967 is interesting, isn't it? Let's take that as relatively typical for the era and carry it forward to the nearest year for which we have census numbers, 1970, at which time the U.S. population was officially 203,211,926. We might reasonably increase the number proportional to the estimated population difference between 1967 and 1970, but I prefer to keep the numbers on the conservative side. So, taking the estimated abortion numbers for 1967, and the population of 1970, we get an approximate abortion rate of 4.079 per thousand people, or more relevantly, 8.158 per thousand women and girls. Or, to take the metric used by the CDC, women aged 15 to 44, we get about 42,679,265 women and an abortion rate of about 19.36 per thousand. 
Now, if we adjust that 829,000 proportionally to the population of the 2020 census, namely 331,449,281, we get an estimated hypothetical number of abortions under pre-Roe conditions of about 1,325,142. That is, assuming conditions in a pre-Roe v. Wade world and thus in the world to which those who overturned it necessarily want us to go back, there would have been over 1.3 million abortions in the U.S. in 2020, many of them unsafe and resulting in fatalities, or even where there was no fatality involving serious and in some cases lifelong injury. So, how many abortions were actually performed in the U.S. in 2020, with Roe v. Wade being on the books? The most recent CDC data I could find were for 2019, which is close enough to make a fair comparison. And when we turn to these numbers, we see 629,896 abortions from 49 districts reporting, and thus excluding California, Maryland, and New Hampshire, but adjusting for population downward to account for these missing stats, an abortion rate of about 11.3 per thousand women aged 15 to 44, or in other words, more than a third less than it would have been if things were now what the reactionaries on the Supreme Court and the Christian right are trying to return them to. And these, moreover, were safe procedures from which the women overwhelmingly emerged unharmed and untraumatized, save for the sign-waving prayer warriors spewing scripture abuse and hellfire at them as they made their way into their local Planned Parenthood clinic. And yes, that fucking happens. So no, if you actually want to reduce the incidence of abortion, banning abortion is not the way to do it. We know this. We've had strong data to this effect for years. Where the desire is to actually reduce abortion and one is dealing honestly and informally with the subject matter, one will and in fact must support contraception, education, health care, and bodily autonomy. Those who oppose all or any of these yet claim to be interested in keeping abortions from happening are dishonest interlocutors or at best culpably ignorant, which is really no better. And when you are dealing with a dishonest interlocutor, the most important question to ask is always, what do they really want? How is the narrative in their head different from the narrative that they are feeding you? And here, the best indication is the most likely outcome of their policies. So, in undermining women's bodily autonomy, what does the religious right want? In forcing disproportionately poor and vulnerable women to give birth to unwanted children, what are they trying to achieve? In simultaneously opposing policies intended to raise those women and those children out of financial and educational poverty, what goals could they possibly have? Of course, I can't answer these questions with certainty, and there's probably not a single answer anyway. The best anyone can do is to look at where the data point and speculate on likely outcomes, which will be part of where I go in the next episode. Other questions I plan to address include the big white elephant in the room, the nature and status of the fetus, and some thoughts as well on why I, a Canadian man, am weighing in on this topic at all, let alone so emphatically. In the meantime, if you've made it this far, thank you very much for listening. If you're in a jurisdiction where your status has just been effectively reduced to one of reproductive slavery, you have my absolute sympathy and absolute support. And until next time, be kind to each other but not so kind that you allow your rights to be stripped away.